Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hey, everybody. We have a vexing one today. Catherine Rampell from The Washington Post writes a great column on, on economics. Not vexing because uh, Catherine is vexing. Far from it. She's one of the great uh, columnists on economics. But it's vexing a little bit because we recorded this before, right before the Silicon Valley crash, but Catherine was nice enough to come back and uh, talk about that. You'll hear that at the beginning, and then we're going to go to our conversation about a whole range of economic issues. I think you're going to not be vexed by this one, but enjoy it. Catherine Rampell from The Washington Post. What's the best way into this? Should we talk about what happened yesterday? Uh, The the big banks uh, putting billions in to help middle-level banks or other banks? I mean, what's been interesting is that the federal government took a bunch of extraordinary measures last weekend, in theory, to restore confidence and stop the panic and all of that. And that's happened. It's restored confidence and stopped the panic, right? Well... So we're fine. (laughs) Um, I mean, the depositors at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank are totally fine. Well, they're fine now. They're bailed out. Yeah, they they well, we, we don't call it the B word. Nobody knows what. Oh no 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 no, no 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 no! Uh, all their deposits are secured. Right, right. That's what but I meant. We, nobody That's knows what, what a bailout is. We just know it's bad. So those depositors are fine. There's some ambiguity about everybody else who has their money in a small or medium sized bank if they have more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars, which most people don't have, but. There are enough people who do and enough people who are confused about what's insured and what isn't, even if they're below the FDIC insured cap, that you're still seeing this basically flight to safety where there's been an outflow of deposits from these small and medium-sized banks to the two big-to-fail banks, essentially. And that makes those smaller banks and middle-sized banks weaker and these too big to fail banks stronger and is that good is that good or bad for us i mean it's good for the big banks certainly it's not good for the small and medium-sized banks and is that good for the economy uh to the extent that we're still seeing a lot of turmoil in financial markets definitely not good for the economy the challenge is that to really allay these concerns i think the Feds would have to say, look, no matter what size your bank account is, you will be made whole. Your money is not at risk of being affected by a bank run or otherwise. We are treating everything as if it is fully insured. The problem is that it's not technically legal for them to say that in such explicit terms because 
there is a law that says FDIC insurance is only for deposits under $250,000, and there has to be a special vote. So they're guaranteeing this to whom? To people in every bank? Not into they're, the- they're not doing this. They're not explicitly yeah, saying this. Right. They're saying much more vague things that are you know, clearly within their legal ability to say, like, your money is safe. But- if you are uh, you know, not a financial expert, or even if you are, it's not clear what that means. And I think there's still some lingering anxiety. <laughs> so that's everybody. It's not clear to anybody. Right? Okay. Right. So I think there's still some lingering anxiety about what does that mean? Is it safe? Is it not safe? And then the other layer of all of this, which is that even if the deposits are safe, what about the people who own shares of stock in those banks? Because like in the case of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, they said, we are not protecting the shareholders. We are not protecting the bondholders or the executives or anybody else. We're only protecting the depositors. So you still might be worried if you own stock in First Republic Bank, for example, that you might get wiped out because that's how capitalism works. Right, right. Which is good. I mean, which, which is, is well, which is we, in, we in want theory capitalism good. still to survive. And for, <laughs> do, I mean, do we want to guarantee everything for everybody? And if they don't do that, well, are everyone going to go to these just big banks? And is that good? So what, what, what's the choice there? There are trade offs, right? In the near term, if you make a guarantee like that, that will probably stop the panic or not stop it, but at, at the very least, slow it down a little bit that people will say, okay, I guess I don't really need to move my money from Oklahoma City Community Bank or whatever to JP Morgan or City City Bank Bank of America. Yeah, Yeah, whatever. Because the government has said everything's protected. In the short term, that's a good thing. In the long term, it's risky because if the government is, is implicitly or explicitly, I guess, guaranteeing that they will bail out every depositor in America, that means that the managers of those banks, let's say, might be, you know, a little more fast and loose with how financially responsible they are with their depositors' money. In economics, this is this term called moral hazard, that essentially, if you tell people that there's no downside to their behavior or a capped downside to their behavior, then they do dumber, riskier things. And raising the limit, is that like something they might do? And oh, again, you're, you're talking about the law is up to 250, right? Right. I think that would require an act of Congress. Right. Congress would have to say all bank accounts, whatever their size, are fully insured. So I should remind everybody before I, and that this is we're talking on Friday. Yes. Who knows what's going to happen between now and Sunday? Yes, exactly. When we drop. So uh, you're only responsible till uh, Friday at uh, uh, what what time is it? 1037. Uh, 1037 Eastern. So anything you say, if something happens at 1038 that you don't that we don't know about, uh, Catherine is held harmless here. Like, Like the depositors. (laughs) <laughs> That's my bailout. <laughs> yeah, um, right. So I, I think that to explicitly say everybody's guaranteed no matter what, that would require an act of Congress. And probably they'd want to do a bunch of other things too, like change how the FDIC insurance program is funded. Because right now it's it's an insurance plan, right? And you're basically only paying insurance fees on up to $250,000. But if you're actually going to 
potentially give payouts to any size bank account, probably you should assess those fees on the, the entirety of people's deposits. You know, that would probably require an act of Congress. The administration has come very close to saying, look, if things get really bad, we will take these votes again. These votes being that like, we think that there's a uh, systemic risk to the financial system and we are going to bail out these depositors. But they can't make a blanket statement saying, no matter what, if your money is at a community bank, we will protect it you know, down to the last cent. Because again, the law says they have to have a special vote. And the vote is of the, uh, of the Fed board. They need, I think, a two-thirds majority of the Fed board and a two-thirds majority of the FDIC and the support of the Treasury Secretary. In okay. this past weekend, you know, it was interesting. Uh, I spoke with a bunch of financial experts, financial stability people before this bailout was announced. And a bunch of them said, yeah, I don't think this is going to be rise to, le- to the level of uh, systemic risk. Uh, and then, of course, they voted otherwise. <laughs> um, and in fact, they voted unanimously. Like I said, they need a two-thirds vote of those two agencies plus the Treasury Secretary. And everyone said, uh-huh, we think we should do this. We think that there is there is a systemic threat. Can we talk about how this is different from 08? Yep. But, but please talk to that and, and why uh, this shouldn't be as scary as that was, but why we're seeing this kind of panic. So banks in general are in a much healthier financial situation than was the case before the so-called great financial crisis, 2007. And and isn't that partly because uh, Silicon Valley Bank was invested in, in actually something that was secure, which were treasuries, they just didn't understand that we'd have all this inflation and the treasuries would be worth less and less. And before, in 08, it was like in all these mortgage-backed securities, very sleazy packages, right? So to be clear, there's a lot of confusion about this. Silicon Valley Bank also invested in long-term uh, mortgage-backed securities. But they were ones that were not like dodgy. So right. if if interest rates had not gone up, they would have – well, I mean, I guess we don't know what other yes. decisions they might have made. But if interest rates hadn't gone up, this would not have been a problem for them. They bought things that looked safe in the sense that they were not going to result in a default. What was the inflation rate when they bought these? Do you know? You know, I don't know. I think a lot of the assets were purchased in late 2021, but I'm not 100% sure. And we were already seeing rising inflation then. Uh, I mean, the whole thing is is dumb. It is dumb. It's so dumb. Uh, I spoke with uh, an economist who taught introductory money and banking to business school students at NYU for 10 or 15 years. And I was asking him about this and he's like, I don't get it. We teach in the first week or the first few weeks of the class that you need to hedge against this particular set of risks. You know, the things that you buy that are long-term, if interest rates move in the wrong direction, you need to have some, you know, they call it a hedge. They, you know, some. So sort evidently, of- the uh, people at, at uh, Silicon Valley hadn't taken this guy's course. 
Apparently not. And in fact, what they did instead, they had hedged against this risk. You know, it's like you buy a little bit of something and then you buy something else that cuts in the opposite direction and they, in case your original bet is wrong. That's basically what a hedge is. They had been hedging against it. And then last year, 2022. So again, this is like after we have seen huge um, inflation, huge inflation mm-hmm. after the Fed has explicitly said, hey, guys, interest rates have been going up. They will continue going up for some time. Silicon Valley Bank managers said, "Mm, we're going to dump those hedges (laughs) because we think interest rates are going down. Wow. And again, even if they wanted to make that bet, they should have placed another bet to hedge against it, and they didn't. And this was in their annual financial filings. End of year financial filings in 2022, they said, like, we offloaded all of these hedged investments this year, or we let them lapse, or we sold them, basically. So this was like a risk that was hiding in plain sight. Now, I understand why your typical person may not have been paying attention to it, because most people are not reading the uh, annual financial filings of the 15th or whatever it is, 16th largest bank in America. But the question here is, why didn't the regulators catch it? I think primary blame lies on the managers of the bank. They made dumb decisions. Explain what regulators do in terms of looking at these kinds of reports. and Because they are. That's what these reports are for the regulators, right? Well, they're for investors. Okay. The, the, the annual financial filings that I was talking about, those are public. Those are for investors. Okay. But they are obviously available to the bank supervisors, to the regulators as well. And the regulators, in theory, should have privy to non-public <laughs> information, too, if they are doing their job and they're making sure that a bank isn't taking undue risk, isn't doing something that could cause uh, a bigger blow up. I mean, it's not that unusual for banks to fail, to be clear. Little banks fail all the time. We have a ton of banks in the United States, usually not that big of a deal. This was a relatively large bank and one that when it went under, you know, could have these huge spillover effects to lots of things outside of the banking sector because there were a bunch of payroll services companies, for example, that used Silicon Valley Bank. And so they were so the payroll services companies, if they couldn't access their money, that meant that all of the companies that were their clients, their workers couldn't get paid. So a lot of little people would have been been hurt. Yes, that was the fear. And beyond the spillovers into, you know, these small businesses that would be affected. We've already seen this uh, contagion effect elsewhere in the banking sector that people said, hmm, if this kind of blow up can happen at that bank, maybe that also means it can happen at my bank. And that's basically what we what you're seeing with a bunch of other mid-sized regional banks this week, uh, seeing outflows of deposits and seeing their stock prices decline. Oh, boy. So um, what between now and Sunday, when this is dropped, what don't you want to see happen? (laughs) Um, What don't I want to see happen? It would be really nice if you (laughs) see another bank failure. Um, And to be clear, there is not like a particular institution that I am worried about. And in fact, the one that I think the most people were concerned about, which was First Republic Bank, just got, as as we said at the beginning of this recording, a big cash infusion from their big brothers, you know, 
larger financial institutions. They got a, a lifeline. And yet their stock price is still falling today. So who knows? But it would be nice if they were, if, if this were done, if whatever, use whatever euphemism you want to use, panic, anxiety, turmoil, whatever we've seen in the past week concluded and then um, we can move on. Like whatever whatever the issue was, it's settled and we can move on. Because part of the challenge here is, uh, which we haven't really discussed explicitly, is what does the Fed do next, right? Because part of the reason why we've seen these problems at Silicon Valley Bank and some of these other banks is that interest rates have been rising. And that's why their balance sheets suddenly Is the Fed going to uh, change its policy about that? I mean, are they going to say, hmm, inflation seems to be uh, tamped down a little bit? Well, and inflation is still bad. Not- this is the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever The Fed is in a terrible situation because almost whatever it does to solve problem A uh, will make problem B worse, right? And vice versa. Problem A being inflation and problem B being uh, risk of recession, uh, you know, financial market turmoil, et cetera. But we still have really high inflation. It's not as bad as it was in the middle of last year, but it's still like three times as high as the Fed says it is targeting. And the longer we deal with elevated inflation, the harder it can be to stamp out because it becomes sort of self-reinforcing. People have seen prices rise, so they anticipate future price increases and they start raising, you know, if you're a a Which is why they want to be aggressive, but being aggressive now is not Right, but if they're too aggressive, then and they break, they break the banks, so to speak. That's not good either. So again, it's like the the Fed has this one blunt instrument, which is interest rates, and it has a lot of consequences that they can't exactly control. So the challenge for them is figuring out how do we make sure we are cred, like people believe we are committed. We are credibly committed to stamping out inflation without causing a financial crisis or whatever or tipping us into a recession. And that's a really hard thing to figure out. If you look at the forecasts for what the Fed is going to do next week, because they're meeting Tuesday and Wednesday and they will announce what's going on with interest rates on Wednesday, the forecasts are all over the place. So are people on the Fed board going like, aha, this is why I... I'm on the Fed board for a crisis like this. Thank God I'm, I'm so glad I'm here. Or I are mean, they going like, oi? I mean, if it were me, I would be saying oi. Because, again, almost whatever choice they make, it will be the wrong choice in some dimension. And That's comforting. It's, yeah, I know. It's it's hard. Um, look, they've they've goofed up a bunch of things, to be clear, in the past few years. I think that they probably should have started raising rates sooner. And the Fed was is one of the supervisors, one of the key supervisors for Silicon Valley Bank. So I think that they, bear, they, they probably bear some responsibility for not catching this issue sooner. They've screwed up, but they also have almost an impossible task ahead of them, which is how do they balance all of these different risks? You know, how do they deal with inflation and the the stability of the financial system and try not to keep, uh, try not to 
like cause a recession and cause people to lose their jobs. And, and it's a really hard set of things to, to do all at once. Well, thank you uh, for jumping on again. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And, and um, let's hope that by Sunday, when people uh, tune this in, they'll be going like, oh, thank God. Everything has been fixed. That's right. Okay. That's what I'm hoping for. Okay. Thanks, Al. Well, thanks to Catherine for providing us with that update. And we'll be right back with the interview that we had uh, right before the crash. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Catherine was. Uh, we were scheduled to do this. Uh, you were at home, right? And some, some suddenly, someone started a power saw somewhere in your yes. apartment building. Yes, they decided that was the optimal time to start making really loud construction noises. Yeah, and so you left. I left. <laughs> went, I sought refuge somewhere else. Yes, <laughs> at your husband's uh, office, which fortunately is across the street. But yeah. he's an economics professor, and you're worried that there may be some students who come for um, – does he have special times where students can come and ask No, questions? I think that they just interrupt him constantly, and they will be sorely disappointed to find that I'm here uh, and will be unable to answer whatever complicated econometric questions they have. Yeah, so he, he teaches uh, economics, and you write about economics. Correct. We are a very economics-heavy household. And are you doing well economically? <laughs> <laughs> We're doing okay. Uh, okay we are doing good. okay as these things go. Yeah. I don't ever ask my uh, uh, guests that, so I'll get away from that. But it's, I think it's, it's interesting, the two people in economics. And you write great about economics. That's why I'm so thrilled to have you back. I want to ask you... You've written a number of columns lately, critical of Biden in one way or another, about very specific things. 
One is about this this huge chips thing where we're going to be making microchips, right, in the United States. Uh, that was a big accomplishment, right, that, that bill? Yes. I think we will have to wait to see how successful it is. But the last right. few years have definitely shown there is a problem that needs to be resolved, that global supply chains, um, when they get disrupted, if we don't have some sort of backup resource, some, some way to get semiconductors, which are a key input into cars, computers, cell phones, you name it, that causes lots and lots of disruptions for other industries. And so it is helpful to have uh, some reliable backup supply. The CHIPS bill is intended to shore up domestic manufacturing of semiconductors in the U.S. And how, how does it do that? And what percentage of, of these chips did we have being made in the United States? How many were made abroad? Where were they made abroad? In China, a lot. And tell us, give us just for uh, me and my listeners, a little sure. bit broader view of that. So uh, President Biden likes to talk about how this technology was invented, or at least important steps of it were invented in the United States. Most of that kind of production has shifted abroad. We source a lot from Taiwan, from China, from Japan, from South Korea, from a, a bunch of other places. And, and it's not like any one component comes exclusively necessarily from one place, like it might get uh, different different steps in the process may take take place in different countries. So to make one microchip, you might it might go through a few countries? Yeah, depending on where the materials are sourced from, for example, or uh, you know how advanced the, the ultimate product is. This is not unusual. It's amazing when we think about how, glo how global the global economy is and how any one machine that you see, how many different places it was made. The, the elements of it were made. It's amazing, isn't it? It is. It's almost magical, I think, when you think about the journeys that everyday products have taken around the world to get to you. <laughs> uh, something as simple as a microchip or a piece of fruit, for that matter, things that are a little bit less technologically sophisticated. But in the case of chips, the real, uh, let's say, national security slash economic security concern is that China is a key part of the supply chain. And China and the US have had increasingly adversarial relations. We don't really want to be in a situation right, where we're on the hook because of some major policy decision that China makes that may not be in our interest. Right. And even if, if that hadn't happened, the, this adversarial relationship, you still don't want that dependence because an adversarial relationship could develop with the second largest economy in, in the world. And well, there are a lot of countries that we have friendly relationships with that are um, industrial yeah, we're not bases. worried about Germany. Canada. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think we shouldn't frame all of this as, you know, everything has to happen in the U.S. because... You don't know where your enemies lurk. I think there are plenty of countries where we're happy to have these integrated manufacturing relationships with, you know, and lots of products cross the border back and forth between Canada and the U.S. multiple times. It's like in the auto industry is a good example of this because it's essentially uh, one economic zone and that's fine. But China is a slightly different situation. And um, there is a fear that over the long run, if things worsen, if things deteriorate, not only might there be 
kind of accidental disruptions in supply chains, which is arguably what happened during COVID. During COVID when, yeah. Right. But that there might be more strategic ones. And so there is some strategic advantage to building up more of this industrial base. So, so in the what, US. what did this bill do? Because you said we we're yet to see how this is going to work out, how successful this is going to be. And some of the barriers, you, you, you wrote a column saying, because Biden wanted to, uh, President Biden wanted to pair childcare with all these right. factories, right. which you kind of pointed out, hmm, maybe it's not. We, we like childcare. I, I, look, I'm a big fan of expanding childcare. I think that is a huge hole in the current U.S. social safety net. We do not have enough childcare. Yeah. This was something else that became especially salient during COVID, but obviously was a problem pre-COVID as well. I'm not knocking efforts to invest in childcare. Well, I, I'm for universal pre-K. I'm for uh, uh, you know expanding childcare in Europe. They spend like seven thousand dollars a child to parents. They give them seven thousand dollars a year for each child for their childcare. Yeah, so this that's not how this would work. My beef with or the way that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. My my beef with the way that this this whole chips and child care bundle thing has been designed is essentially the federal government has said if you want to get a big chunk of money from this chips bill, and the chips bill would I think invest something like fifty-two billion dollars total in subsidies for domestic semiconductors. If you want a relatively big piece of that, a big grant, you have to guarantee child care for generally on-site child care for your manufacturing workers and the construction workers who build your factory, which sounds nice. Again, like- Sounds great. Sounds great. Um, I love the idea of more people having access to child care. I think this is a terrible way to do it because- <laughs> Okay. <laughs> because like the money should be used for building the semiconductor industry as efficiently, as quickly as possible. That's the goal. The more conditions you put on who can get this money that are not related to how well they can actually build the plant, I think the the less optimized, the, you know, the less likely it is that the money is going to get used for the thing you want. It's like trying you're sort of trying to siphon off some of this money for childcare. That's kind of part one. I think you end up with a worse semiconductor program. Part two is I think you also end up with a worse childcare program in the sense that even if like I, I don't I don't think requiring a bunch of construction companies to offer on-site child care is going to be the template that solves America's child care crisis, you know, 10 years from now. I don't think we're going to look back in time and be like, wow, that was the moment when they had those construction firms in Ohio have child care. This was you looking at a very specific pairing of, of two priorities that just probably are a bad idea. Well, they, they're, they're a good idea independently. That's, right? that's what I'm saying. But he was trying to kill two birds and this, this wasn't is, the yes, right pond. It's a turducken. It's speaking of birds. It's a turducken. It's like we want to cram as many things into the one <laughs> pot of money. That we passed. Uh, <laughs> that we pass. that we actually got through. Go us, you know, go Congress. But you end up like... In the, like in, in the turducken analogy, you know, you would probably cook the turkey at a different <laughs> temperature than you would cook the, ch the chicken or the duck. But now, like, everything has to be cooked at the same temperature and you end up with, like, a somewhat less... That's John, Ma John Madden's uh, <laughs> thing where he put a, a turkey and a chicken and a duck and cooked yes. them together for Thanksgiving. Just we, for... We 
Yes, for for those unfamiliar. But I think this is a really common thing in U.S. policymaking because it's so hard for us to get anything through, through Congress or otherwise. We try to like stick as much stuff <laughs> onto the one vehicle that can get through. But this wasn't in the bill. This, this was, was not actually in the bill. No, this was this was added by the Department of Commerce. Yeah, this wasn't like a Christmas tree bill. This was. No. Uh, where, okay, let's put, you know, a childcare under it. But it's the same impulse, I think, which yeah. is like, because we can't get a real childcare program through, this is the next best thing. We'll make some random construction contractors provide on-site childcare, and that will somehow solve the problem. But what I was going to say was not only do I think that you end up with, you know, the, the money spent less efficiently, less effectively in building up the semiconductor industry. Also, I think it's a terrible model for childcare. Like we, we've already seen how problematic it is to have health insurance benefits linked to a specific employer employee relationship. Right. I mean, like you end up with job lock. People are afraid to leave their jobs. You kind of want the option of these benefits available outside of a particular job, you know, a particular employer-employee contract, even if this, this childcare model is successful, it is replicating that. It is like recreating all the same problems that we've had from employer-sponsored health insurance, some of which were kind of resolved through Obamacare. But because of Obamacare, if you lose your job, you can still get Right. Healthcare on the on the exchange. Right. And and the, this model I think is is the wrong approach. You're you're recreating the same pre-Obamacare problems. So let, let's move from that because this is to me uh not atypical from of, of your columns, which is looking at a problem like this, and that's what I really like them. But th I want to get into your more general theory of economics. Last time I had you on, uh, I said something out of context a little bit. I said, we all do better when we all do better, which is what Paul Wellstone used to say. We all do better when we all do better. And I think you heard me say, a rising tide lifts all boats. Hmm. I think you took it that way. What Paul meant, you know, I'm from Minnesota. And so this is a big deal in Minnesota. We all do better when we all do better. He means that we build from the middle class out, mm -hmm. basically. And that when the middle class is strong, when working people are strong, that's when the economy does well. And that when a bridge collapses and Mercedes falls as fast as a Hyundai, that we all do better when we all do better means that we build the society from not the bottom up, but the middle out. Mm -hmm. That's when America was strongest, when we had a strong middle class. And you write about taxes. You know that we have very, 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 very wealthy people in this country who don't pay taxes. Our country now is, is much, much more unequal than it was when I was growing up. That's kind of what he that meant. That makes sense. That makes sense. And I think um, I generally agree with that philosophy that more economic equality is generally better. I think I care more about setting a floor on living standards than setting a ceiling on it, if that makes sense. So like there are people, do you know what I mean? Like there are yeah. people who think the existence of billionaires is in and of itself a, a policy mistake. And it's like, I don't care if there are really rich people in the world, they can do whatever they want. 
what I care more about is how are the least fortunate among us living? You want you want uh, yeah. universal pre-K. You want early want, yes. childhood education. Yes. I, I'm generally in favor of a much more progressive, progressive in the uh, technical sense, safety net and financial re- redistribution. It's cool if people make a lot of money, um, but tax them and then use that money to raise the living standards of the people who ha- have less. Let's talk about how people who make unbelievable amounts of money, you know, multi-multi-billionaires, pay no taxes. Let's say someone has $100 billion and it's in like stock, right? Because mm-hmm. they own Tesla or something. As an example. <laughs> As an example. And they don't pay taxes on holding stock, right? Uh, it depends on how it's structured. but. Generally, no, you are not, with with some exceptions, you are not taxed on the value of your assets. You are taxed on your income for the most part. I'm I'm oversimplifying. You have capital gains and stuff like that, but only when they're realized. You only have capital gains when they're realized. Right, right. So so he has $100 billion. So now he can borrow money, right? So instead of to live, he can just say, you know what, let's, I want to borrow $500 million this year to live on <laughs> and you know, he's borrowing it. Right. And paying interest on it. The, the, this, he doesn't have to pay taxes on that. Right. Generally. No. So, so is this how people, cause you read about a, a lot of billionaires not paying any income taxes. And is that how it works? Right. They can borrow against their assets. Right. Which they're not paying income taxes on the, loans that they get to sort of support their lifestyles, they are also not counted as income, so they're not paying taxes on those. To the the outside observer, it would look like they are living the life of someone who has a lot of income, but the tax code does not treat them as making income. And so, therefore, they are not due taxes until they die. Um, and sometimes not even then, <laughs> right? Right. Um, so, but let me ask you. Let me yeah. ask you: Is this common? Is what I'm describing? Because I, I try to get through my head. How is it that people can be this wealthy and pay no taxes, none, zero, uh, or you know, no income taxes? Is this common? To the extent that billionaires are common, and they're not that common, or hundred millionaires, or what have you. Yes, I think this is a, a fairly easy loophole in the tax code to take advantage of. These people are not breaking any laws. To be clear, this is tax avoidance, not tax evasion. This is, unfortunately, our tax code working as it is designed to do. This is how we have written the law. As long as Congress keeps the law as it is, these people will be on the right side of the law, You know, these, these very wealthy people. And do, do you get the sense, and remember I was in the Senate, I wasn't on the finance committee, so I didn't see this very close uh, hand. But I think we all get the sense that the very wealthy have influence in Congress and that things are written into the tax code that help them all the time. Yes, I think that is undeniably true. I would argue that there are things written into the tax code that unfairly benefit lots of people besides just the Elon Musks of the world. There are a lot of things in the tax code that are probably also not 
a you know great stewardship of resources and are subsidize things we don't like or give money to people that probably don't need it. So it is this is not unique. Can you give me some examples of those? If you want something like particularly galling, I would talk about the carried interest, which is basically people who work private equity, private equity, um, some hedge funds and VC partners. They are taxed at a effectively taxed at a much lower rate on what, again, to most of us would look like earnings, labor income, but they don't they don't have to call it labor income. Um, so they get they get taxed at the rate for capital gains, essentially. And and in order to do that, they have to get this money within a certain period. Is that right? Yeah, there there are some constraints on it, but they're really not that onerous. <laughs> so this is why you have very wealthy private equity people who are, again, on the right side of the law, able to pay much lower tax rates than a, a nurse, you know, as a percentage of their income than a nurse or a firefighter or a bus driver or, you know, insert name of um, working class occupation, I guess. And uh, they're on the right side of the law because... Because that's how the law is written. And the law is written that way because these people give lots of money sometimes to people who are writing the laws. That is certainly part of it. Uh, And you would know better than I do what those pressures are like as, (laughs) as an elected official to not tick off your donors. I, I mean, again, I, did, I, I was not on finance, so maybe I didn't feel that at all. But, you know, I'm a progressive. I'm, we all do better when we all do better. I think our tax code is completely fucked up. <laughs> and that, That's the technical term for it. Yep. Yeah. What, what percentage of stocks do like the top 1% of Americans own? I don't know off the top of my head, but it is definitely disproportional to their to how many of them are in the population. It is more than 1%. I'll put it that way. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Catherine Rampell from The Washington Post. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now... New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation. 
We're back with Catherine Rampell. Let's go to the the Inflation Reduction Act and the IRS, the part of the uh, about the IRS, and and what what was the increase in funding for that? So the Inflation Reduction Act did a bunch of different things. Um, I think most people know it for the investment in climate, which is about three hundred ninety billion or something. The biggest climate investment in U.S. history. Thank God, and and could and should be more, but thank God for that. Mm-hmm. What a great achievement! Good. So it okay. did climate, <laughs> it did some healthcare stuff, and then it also invested eighty billion dollars in the IRS. Yeah, so let's talk about the eighty billion dollars in the IRS. Yeah, about half of the money, a little more than half, is for enforcement, and what that means is just making sure people are abiding by the law. Like we were just talking about all of these ways that people can legally keep their taxes down, right? But there's plenty of tax cheating, (laughs) Um, much of which is also done by very wealthy individuals, not exclusively. But it's harder to catch them because it's more the the way they cheat and and, and to, to audit them is much more difficult, more complicated. Right. And there's also some gray area, like some parts of the law, you know, it's not exactly clear how much you owe or how much you don't, like where where you are taking an aggressive stance, let's say, uh, in your how you're interpreting the law. If you're a rich person, you have armies of accountants and tax attorneys who can make some of these cases like, well, you can really deduct that or that doesn't really count as income or whatever. And the IRS is so overwhelmed that they're kind of not going to be able to check your work. That's what an audit is, essentially. Well, so overwhelmed is is part of the reason for the $80 billion is right. to get auditors that are capable of looking at the people. They, they don't have armies. Uh, you don't need an <laughs> army of accountants. No. Well, I, I say army. Yeah, it's funny. I guess I should be careful about how I, what uh, analogy I use because people literally think that the IRS is a bunch of you know, armed with machine guns. Oh, uh, oh yeah. No, and nor do they think that the you know accountants that they have that the rich people have have weapons. What you're talking about is some of the messaging coming out of Republicans yeah. is saying Ted Cruz, et cetera. Yeah, that they're, they're going to arm eighty thousand. Yeah, so that's not true. What uh, has happened? IRS people. What has happened is that the IRS was basically gutted starting around shortly after the Tea Party Revolution 2010, thereabouts. Funding for the IRS was slashed and slashed and slashed. And why why was that? Purposeful. Yes, it was it was a combination of sort of ideological opposition to the government entity that collects revenue, right? If you're one of these Freedom Caucus, Tea Party, whatever you want to call that, you know, the evolving name of that group. You want small government and What's the what's the analogy about strangle the baby in the bathtub? Yeah, yeah. You uh, want to reduce the size of the government so that yeah, you can so it, uh, right. drown it in a bathtub. If you, if you, there are all these analogies. If you starve the beast by giving it getting it less tax revenue, then it'll be easy enough to drown in the bathtub. I don't know. A bunch of mixed metaphors. In any event, so part of it was that there was this scandal kind of thing over whether the IRS was auditing at higher rates some right-wing groups. That had the word Tea Party in it or something Yeah, like I think it was like if they had Patriot or something like that. And was that actually true or not? I mean, yes and no. I think from my recollection, for, it's been a while since I covered this, but my recollection was that this wasn't about targeting your political enemies. It was about 
these are groups that generally do not believe in government, right? And so maybe there's a reason why if you have this keyword in your name, you might be more likely to shirk on your taxes. Well, they weren't really a 501c4 right, or a right, 501c3. Right. These were political uh, organizations and the tax exempt groups are generally not supposed to engage in, in lobbying and political activity. But it was a really clumsy way to go about it. I, I guess my point is, I don't think that there was something malicious here. It was badly handled and it looked really terrible. And the effects may have not been good in terms of who was affected by these higher audit rates. But that fed this backlash. I mean, everybody's always hated the IRS, right? It's so I, I no. should. No. No. Think about the Beatles tax man song, you know? I feel like it's not exactly controversial to it's the not- one fucking Beatles song <laughs> that right wing talk show, you know, talk radio guys play. That's it. <laughs> I guess. That's it. I think it is not unusual. I think there's a trope in movies, you know, everybody hates it when the tax man shows up, the IRS auditor, agent, whatever. I I, I will look this up, but I think that people actually want the IRS to do a good job. I think people comply with the IRS. They're fine with paying their taxes. And I think most people don't have that complicated a tax you That's know, true. issue. And, and so, and they're fine and they don't really hate them at all. And I think what happened here was it, it might've been people who didn't trust the government, who were Tea Party people who think the government is evil. I think mainly who the people behind this were the people that were wealthy people who didn't want to pay taxes and and who wanted to avoid paying taxes who were cheating. And what they wanted to do is gut the IRS so that the IRS could do its job and especially the job of auditing people who make a lot of money and doing an effective job of that. I I think it's a combination of things. I think there are people who see it as in their interest to have a much weaker IRS so that they can get away with whatever shenanigans they're getting away with, with the help of their accountants or otherwise. First of all, there are legal ways to do that. That's my point. Yes. Our tax code sucks. <laughs> yeah. So here, so let's put it in a couple categories. The legal way of avoiding paying taxes, that's just what? Avoidance, right? Yes, that's, that's avoidance. Okay, that and that's there's so many legal ways to do it. The cheating part is very different. And you're able to cheat if there aren't auditors in the IRS who are sophisticated enough to go after people who make over $400,000 or something like that who cheat. Yes. And there are certain kinds of tax returns that are much more complicated. You know, if you are a regular W2 employee, um as most workers are. You work for one company. Generally, you're on their payroll. All of your income is already getting reported to the government anyway. It's easy to check. It's hard to cheat because the government knows. People who have much more complicated, you know, they, they run their own business. They run businesses in, let's say, industries like real estate that have a lot of complexity in, in their part of the tax code that applies to them. Much easier to, um, if not outright cheat, to again, take aggressive tax stances and hope that you just never get caught, that nobody calls you on it. And, and the fact is that those people are audited far, far less because it's complicated and because the IRS does not have 
uh, enough order so to do that. There's a little that. bit of a misconception about this. High income people are still generally audited at higher rates than the typical person, but they're audited a lot less frequently than they used to be. So um, if you are a millionaire, you still have a higher chance of getting audited than a typical middle class person, but your chances of getting audited are still pretty low. I understand there's a very high percentage of people get the earned income tax credit that are Yes, they, they have very high audit rates. That's true. Not as high as millionaires, but still high. But that's partly because it's they're just like low-hanging fruit. These are very easy tax returns to audit. A lot of it's kind of automated. That's right. That's automated. Right. They send out a letter saying something doesn't match. You know, two people claimed the same child or whatever as their dependent. Uh, yoink, we're taking back your EITC. That's very, very simple. If you're auditing someone like Donald Trump and you have to sort through like well, we hundreds... That's impossible. They've, they've right. discovered. Right. And it's, it's, just, it's a lot more resource intensive. It's a lot more complicated. You need much more specialized knowledge to know how to, like what to search for, where, he, where, where the bodies might be buried, you know, in the tax return. That's the kind of talent in particular that the IRS lost over the last decade or so was the technical expertise heavy jobs. Now, now let, let's go to, I mean, have you looked at the scoring that CBO has done on this? Because my understanding, like, like the Republicans in the House, one of the first votes they took was to get rid of the funding for the, the extra funding for the IRS, which that won't go anywhere. Yeah. Defund the tax police. Yeah. And, you know, as they're saying, they were saying this is going to be 80,000 armed IRS agents. Which it is not. There's 200. There are <laughs> IRS agents who do are armed and they're the ones who are trying to collect money from drug people and from human traffickers. <laughs> so... <laughs> or they're protecting witnesses who are testifying in a trial and things like that. Yeah, there are, there's a very small group of IRS employees who have guns. And yet Republicans <laughs> will say... Yes, that, they're coming and, after and, you. And they'll, they'll say it on Fox. And it turns out they'll say things on Fox that they know aren't true. What? Uh, have you been following the news? <laughs> Just teasing. Yes, I am aware. I'm aware. My God. No, I've known that for a while. By the way. <laughs> you were ahead of the curve. I was a little bit ahead of the curve, about 20 years. <laughs> Point is, is that has CBO scored? And I think they have. They have. And there's actually, I think there are a lot of people who think that actually CBO understated how much money this investment will bring back because there are weird rules about like what they're allowed to count as producing revenue. So for example, of the $80 billion, like I said, a little more than half goes to enforcement. And then the rest goes to things like IT upgrades, customer Which they service. Need if it's completely oh, desperately, desperately. Desperately. If you have a little time to kill, you can look up this story that I wrote last summer where I visited an IRS facility in Texas where they process the, the returns. And it is wild. I'm telling you, it is like going through the weirdest Willy Wonka tour because you're like in this secret factory with the tax returns and you know everybody's chaperoning you. And they're just piles and piles of paper 
everywhere because they use technology from basically the 1970s. <laughs> but they've used some of the money from the Inflation Reduction Act to upgrade, and they are now up to speed in terms of getting people their returns back. Yes, they've they have made a lot of progress in going through that already, backlog. Already, yes, they have, they have, and they absolutely needed to. And they have more people answering the phone. Right, right. So where I was going with all of this is that when you invest money in the IRS, you get money back not just because you catch tax cheats who might have been underpaying. But also because the vast majority of people want to pay their taxes accurately. Like you said, people like. That's what I was saying. Yes. yes, I said that. I agree. I agree. Let me finish my point. So No, No, let me finish my point, (laughs) which was I was right. You are right. Most people want to pay their taxes. Most people are not tax cheats. And most people don't hate the IRS. They don't. Uh, I don't know. I think they're skeptical at the very least. I think in in fiction they hate it. When you, you're right, Maybe. if there's a movie, people go, "Oh no!" <laughs> but in real life, people go, "Yeah, I'm going to pay my taxes." And, oh, I get a refund, or oh, no, yeah. this year I don't get a refund. Oh, yeah. okay. So most people, I think, are honest <laughs> taxpayers. That's actually truer in the U.S. than in a lot of other countries. We have very high what's called tax morale. There is a term that political scientists try to measure. You know, how good we feel about complying with the tax code, et cetera. That's what I was saying. Yeah. Okay. 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 We're better than saying that. (laughs) I still think people are suspicious of the IRS. I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. Uh, You're maybe right. So maybe going too far. So people want to pay their taxes. I still want to be right. It is so difficult to. Be compliant, even if you are trying to abide by the law, because the tax law is so damn complicated. If you try to call the IRS, historically, it's gotten better this year. But, you know, in the last 10 years, you try to call the IRS, nobody will answer the phone. If you get a question from the IRS, like they don't understand, you know, they think something's wrong in your tax return, they would send you a physical letter. Yeah. And this is why they're spending $80 billion. Yes. So all of which is to say that when you invest money in the IRS, not only will you catch the people who are not trying to abide by the law, you will help the people who are trying their darndest to abide by the law so that they can pay their taxes on time. When you have better customer service, when you have clear answers to basic questions about how you file your taxes, you will have more people compliant. And that raises money too. And figuring out what the dollar value of that is really complicated, like how much more money comes in as a result. And that's where you get more debate about like, what's the return on investment of essentially of investing in the IRS. You know, you can make one set of assumptions about catching the tax cheats. You can make another set of assumptions about, well, what about all the people who were law abiding before, but like were making dumb mistakes because they couldn't get anyone on the phone. How much more money are we going to get from them because we have a more functional system? That's why it's hard to score it. But there was a score. Right. There was a score. It probably understated the value, to right. be honest. It was, but it was like $120 billion. Yes. It was a huge amount of money. Yeah. This is $120 billion out of probably the, you know, close to a trillion dollars that should be paid that aren't paid. And, and that's $120 billion above the spending the $80 billion, right? Yes, yes, that's the net, right? That's so the net. After you strike out all the money you spend, that's how much more you get on net coming into the treasury. Okay, so the Republicans in the House basically with that vote 
would have increased the deficit by $120 billion. Correct. Okay. So this brings me to the debt ceiling. So they're voting there, and you've written on a couple of things where there's a Trump tax cut that is expiring, and no one is going to vote to let it expire? This, you've written about this a couple of times, right? So there are a few different things. I think what you're talking about is the the Trump tax cuts, most of the tax cuts for individuals rather than corporations expire in 2025. Right. That's what you mean? Yeah. I, so that's that, a, I've read a column of yours maybe a while ago. So Yeah, yeah. So that is true. The way that it was sneaky, the way that Republicans passed this tax law, it was very expensive, even as CBO scored it, but it looked not even as expensive as it actually is, because Republicans are assuming that, or, or they wrote into the law, all of these tax cuts, uh, at least on the individual side, expire, um, and so therefore we get more money coming in in you know several years to the future, with the expectation that no one would have the guts to actually let the tax cuts expire. Because once you give people something, it's very hard to take it away. Do you know what these tax cuts are? Where they're located? Um, so, where? so uh, it's it's a bunch of different things. It's like the doubling of the standard deduction. It's I think the rates revert to going back to where they were. It's almost everything on the individual side. All so most Americans did get a tax cut from the the Trump tax bill. The richest people got the biggest tax cuts, but almost everyone else got at least a little bit chopped off of their taxes. And so that will all revert. And it's interesting. It's like at the time, Democrats were opposed, were uniformly opposed to all of these tax cuts. To, to the whole thing. The whole to the package, whole thing. Which was going to increase the deficit by, what, $1.9 trillion. Yeah, yeah, I think the final number before COVID was about 1.9, 1.8 trillion. Uh, I don't know what the numbers would look like now because that, you know, the economy changed. But yeah, I mean, everything went kablooey. Right, uh, right, with, right. With, so with <laughs> Democrats were against those tax cuts when they were passed, but I think it is very unlikely that they will. Uh, yeah, I voted against it. I Yeah, I think that when this stuff expires, they will be reluctant to let the, the tax cuts that they opposed before, I think they will vote to keep them in place. That, that Democrats opposed before. That Yes, I think that's what's likely to happen, at least for most of them. Because again, almost everybody benefited at least a little, and Republicans will frame it as Democrats want to raise your taxes. Well, well they frame it as this is one, the one part of the tax cut that helped you. <laughs> right. Well, um, it was still expensive. Still expensive, and probably there are better ways to to use that money um, rather than you know just throwing a lot of cash back at people. Stuart Stevens wrote this book called it, you know Stuart was campaign manager for uh, W, mm-hmm. and I think a main campaign figure for uh, Romney, and he's part of the Lincoln Project. But he wrote a book called "It Was All a Lie," and all this Republican stuff about you know we want to want low deficits was just a complete lie. And oh, absolutely. All, yeah. And all their tax cuts were aimed to help people at the top. Like I said, there were benefits for people in the middle class and at the bottom, just not nearly as big as those. At yeah. The top. But I remember, because uh, I wrote about this in Lies and Lying Liars, George W. in his first debate with Gore, 
said, by far the vast majority of my tax cuts goes to those at the bottom. By far the vast majority. <laughs> Pretty and sure it, that was wrong. Uh, it was amazingly <laughs> wrong. I mean, it was spectacularly wrong. But if you think, how, how much is vast? That's yeah. like space, right? Vast. <laughs> so by far, but by far, the vast majority is more than half, right? <laughs> so yes. more than Gen- half your tax Generally in, in the English language, that is the understood definition. But a vast majority yeah. is like a galaxy, a universe. That's vast, vast reaches of space. <laughs> and then by far a vast majority. And it, it, no, no, it was a complete lie. And yet the, the headline from that debate, I remember, was Gore had said that he had gone to a disaster with James Lee Witt. He went to a flood, but it wasn't. He had gone to a fire. And wow. the press reported that that was the big lie in the debate. That's unfortunate. Yeah, but but this is to me is as we're heading toward the debt limit, which is very scary, right? This is like the yes. scariest thing ever, maybe. Yes, I'm very worried about this. <laughs> like we're approaching the scariest thing <laughs> that's ever happened economically in our our history, a moment where if we default on our debt, what happens? A lot of bad stuff. So to, to lay out some of the consequences in no particular order, technically we violate the constitution because the constitution says that the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned. So, you know, no biggie, eh. whatever, violate yeah, the constitution. Yeah, I mean, so what? We've done that before. We tortured yeah, people. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Not unprecedented, I guess. Uh, beyond that, you know, you potentially have a global financial crisis because. Well, there's that. Yeah, because U.S. debt is currently considered the safest of safe places to keep your money. The the dollar is the default currency. The reserve currency. Yep. What does that mean? It's the reserve currency. Um, it's it's like the basis on which lots of other transactions are benchmarked or calculated. I guess is one yeah. Way they to would it. rather do that than on, say, the ruble. Yes, it's a good store of value. You believe that the U.S. government will pay back its debts because we always have. <laughs> and unlike lots of other countries that are, you know, fiscal basket cases where they default on their debt, et cetera, we don't. We are reliable borrowers. Um, we're a rich country. We have the resources. We've never, ever, ever, ever defaulted on our debt. We came very close in 11. Yes. Very close. So um, as a result of that, because U.S. debt is considered so safe and everything else is benchmarked against it. Like how much riskier is this other thing, whether it's a mortgage-backed security or a different currency or anything else, you know, some corporate debt, how everything is, is compared against the- sound really secure. Whatever, I'm just, no, <laughs> well, that's just, it depends what they are. Yeah. Separate issue. Yeah. Sorry, that was a distraction. The point is that if we are revealed to be Risky when people thought we weren't, that sets off kind of like a chain reaction in all of these other markets where you could see panic. Like in a similar way that you saw financial contagion when we had a banking crisis, 
you know, it's not identical, but like to give you a sense Started of the Great Recession. Yes, exactly. That was pretty bad. The Great Recession. It was called the Great Recession. Yes, it was. It was great, but in a bad way. Um, That's right. So good, good point. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so you could have you know these kind of shock waves of financial panic. We don't know exactly what that would look like, but it could be quite bad. Beyond that, in the long run, it actually makes our debt problems worse. Of course, of course. Right now, because we are considered a really reliable, safe borrower, other people and countries and companies are willing to lend us money at really low interest rates. Yep. And if we look like we're kind of kooky or unreliable, then lenders will demand higher rates, which means we have to pay more in interest over the long run, which means our debt goes up. That's why Marjorie Taylor Greene should be the Republican spokesman when we do go over the the debt limit so that we don't, so the rest of the world doesn't think of us as kooky. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> she should be the one to explain. Look, we just uh, the deficit's too high, and we wanted to control this, and we so um, they won't accept our draconian cuts in education and and uh, infrastructure. So I'm telling the world, this was part of the deal that McCarthy could become speaker, is that I yeah. would be the spokesperson to the world. To show them why we're doing this. Yeah, that'll really calm everyone's nerves yeah. right there. Okay, that that was just a little fever dream. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I think you and Marjorie Taylor Greene share that fever dream. So, unfortunately, I'm sure she would love that job. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, there's there's no purpose served by the debt ceiling. It should automatically go up. Yeah, it should go up, it should be abolished, or it should be raised to some astronomical number that it it's never really that relevant. I like the trillion dollar coin. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Oh, I, I think I really it's don't. a little gimmicky. You do? You think it's a little yeah. gimmicky? It's a little gimmicky. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if you're worried about, again, financial panic, I'm not sure that the trillion, the trillion dollar, dollar coin, coin is going to settle everything. Is really going to like... Yeah. And can you imagine, like, where's the, where's the trillion dollar coin? What do you mean, where is it? I gave it to you. No, you didn't. <laughs> it's in the couch cushion somewhere. <laughs> Come on. I gave it. You're the Treasury Secretary, and I'm the president, and I gave it to you. I don't remember you giving it to me. Uh, see, that's a problem that... I don't think a lot of people it, are thinking of just losing the trillion dollar coin. <laughs> they have to make it really big <laughs> so that it's easier to spot. Yes. You know, it's like a dinner plate. Oh, or rather or than a huge the size of a penny. You know, there's the trillion dollar coin. It's just, it could be, you know, it could be the size of uh, they could put it in the Capitol on the floor. No, then they take it. Then the <laughs> you know, there'd be another riot. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> It'd be a heist. That would be a good heist movie. <laughs> Someday. You should write it. Okay. I think I got, oh, finally we got something out of this podcast, a good screenplay. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that, but we're going to, it's possible that we could go over this cliff. And we, we came very, very close and the uh, S&P downgraded us, right? Mm-hmm. When that happened in 11. So they vote 
against increasing the funding for the IRS, which CBO, and you say very conservatively, says cuts the debt by $120 billion, but they vote against it. Yeah, this whole idea that they're that Republicans are fiscally responsible is, you know, BS. The comparison I've used is that they're like cicadas, Republican fiscal conservatives. It's like they go underground while there's a while there's a Republican in the White House, oh, I see. and then they pop up and they're like, "Oh, we're going to swarm, and we're now we're going to demand cuts and and fiscal conservatism and all that stuff." That's exactly then, right, but they don't. And because if you track it, greater debts during like Reagan. And Bush one and Bush two. And Trump, even before COVID, if you look at the amount of debt that Trump signed into law before COVID hit, it's like $4.7 trillion, about half of which is new spending. Only about half of it is tax cuts. Everybody talks about how expensive the tax cuts were, and they were expensive. But Trump also expanded the government through a lot of new spending, including on defense. Defense, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, so it's not like this idea that Republicans are good stewards with your money and they really care about balancing the budget. It's bull. I don't think Democrats particularly care either. Yeah. And, and that means that our debt is going to increase and it's just, it just mm-hmm. keeps increasing. And there was, you know, there was this period, again, when Obama became president, then suddenly Republicans cared about the debt. Yes, the cicadas emerged. So you had Simpson Bowls. There's Simpson Bowls, and that's what that's how that's what happened the last time. That's what happened in 2011, right? Mm-hmm. They went to the thing and they said, "Nope, nope, we're going to go over the cliff unless you accept the sequester, unless you accept these cuts." Right? Yes, there was a grand bargain or whatever they called it at the time to bring spending down or to, to curb spending. I'll put it that way. And that's what they want to do this time. And they want to use. Yeah, sort of. You know, they sort of want to do that, but they've kind of ruled that out, too, because they've said Republicans have they, they claim they want to reduce deficits, but they have ruled out like every possible mathematical <laughs> path to doing it. Right. Well. Because. They say we can't raise taxes. In fact, we want to cut taxes. You, you mentioned that one of the first things that they did was that they voted to effectively raise deficits by defunding the IRS. Right. Another one of the first things that they did was they introduced a bill to extend the Trump tax cut. So they're not going to do anything on taxes that would that would solve the problem. They also have now said that they don't want to do anything to Social Security or Medicare. Which is because they had said they were going to do that. And the president in the uh, State of the Union said, you're going to do that. And they went, no, liar. (laughs) (laughs) To be clear, even before that, you know, very memorable moment at the State of the Union, a bunch of Republicans already publicly said, no, we're not going to do that. So like it wasn't clear that they had the votes to do it. Yeah. 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 But a bunch of, but like the guy heading up the Senate campaign committee said that's what we're going to do and ron johnson continues to say it i know they can't they can't all get on the same page <laughs> yeah so they've ruled out taxes they've ruled out entitlements they've ruled out defense some t- there are some republicans who are like oh let's cut defense and then a, l- a lot of them are like hell no we're not going to cut defense they've ruled out veterans because if you roll out all of those things and you extend the trump tax cuts you basically have to reduce everything else in the budget to close to zero because that's the bulk of you know where we can get some money the diabetes prevention programs okay there's a good place to cut 
<laughs> or, or like they're like, well, we'll just cut the wokeness programs. And it's like, no, oh, that's much, a lot how of, of a line money. item is wokeness. Yeah, exactly. What what are the wokeness programs? Uh, the, the wokeness programs are know. like the FBI. I think that <laughs> there's um there's this guy who had been the head of OMB, the Office of Management and Budget under Trump, Russ Vote. I think is how you pronounce his name. Who now runs some political group that's been trying to sell Republicans on a particular plan for dealing with deficits, and it's all about cutting wokeness out of the budget. And if you look at the plan, it's whatever, 100 pages, very detailed. You know, it has woke 100 times or 80 times or something like that. And the FBI, I think, is one of the categories that is considered woke. Uh, I'm trying to remember what else. But it's like everything is woke. Everything that the Republicans are mad about, that's woke. And we're going to cut but it. But what does that mean? You cut the FBI woke know. program or you cut? Whatever that is. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what it means in practice. I, look, it's not a serious proposal. FBI, raise your hand. <laughs> uh, what is your pronoun? Yes, exactly. It's all demagoguing. Nobody really has a serious plan for dealing with deficits. Which is unfortunate because I do think the country has some long-term problems that need to be resolved and will require some unpopular things, including potentially raising taxes or restructuring benefits. Probably some grown-up needs to figure out what we're going to do, but you know it's not an imminent disaster. So like, let's just all pretend we have a solution which involves cutting wokeness or something else that is not painful and never actually resolve it. And to be clear, like I don't think any of this stuff, like whatever concerns I have about long-term fiscal issues, I think they are completely unrelated to whether or not we should raise the debt limit. Debt limit should be raised without conditions. We Absolutely. do have these other Absolutely. unrelated problems <laughs> that we should deal yes. with that nobody cares about, apparently, or not seriously enough to, to come up with a real solution. My solution? Mm -hmm. Collect taxes that people owe. That's one. And then change our tax code to capture a lot of this money that wealthy and very wealthy people have. And when, when I say wealthy, I mean people, you know, who are making 500000 a year and take deductions because they can put money aside for their kids' college, right? Mm -hmm. And they can have that sheltered. And there's all kinds of things that are, are stuff that we need kind of look at and say, we, we got to be good stewards for the future. I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, not been a deficit hawk at all, but we, we need to, we need to actually collect the taxes that are owed and we need to change the code to reflect that we, we have a society that is so top heavy in, in income that those people need to pay more. Now, that's so fucking easy to say, right? <laughs> Much easier said than done, as I'm sure you know. As I know. Well, thank you, Catherine. This has been... Oh, oh, thank you for, for uh, going to your husband's office. No student <laughs> came for... So far not. Ask any questions. I would have been happy to answer any. Oh, yeah. It's too bad. I would have put them on the phone with you. Yeah. podcast with you and they could ask you about how to prove whatever theorem they're trying to prove we'll see how that goes 
Well, uh, thank thank you. This has been uh, fun for me, and um, uh, I'll keep reading you. And I hope uh, my listeners do uh, ch- check you out in the Washington Post. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.